0: Hello, once again, and welcome to the Hey Coach podcast. This is your host, Eric Reyes, and this is the podcast that takes a look at business concepts taken from coaching and the athletic sidelines. Thanks again for tuning in. If you're new to the show, or if you haven't done so so far, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. It moves me up in the ratings, and it helps other listeners find my show. Today, I am so excited, and I know I say this a lot. But today I am so excited to bring you this conversation as a longtime Cincinnati Bengals fan I have the honor to bring to you my conversation with linebacker legend Reggie Williams from Flint Michigan Reggie was a star athlete and student at Flint Southwestern High School at Flint he played football and wrestle after high school Reggie received an academic scholarship and became the three-time All-Ivy League linebacker in football and Ivy League heavyweight wrestling champion at Dartmouth College. After college, Reggie was drafted in the third round to the Cincinnati Bengals, where he played 14 seasons, including two Super Bowls. Willing to receive numerous honors, but one of his greatest achievements was being named the nfl walter payton man of the year and if that wasn't enough as a cincinnati Bengal, he also served three years on the cincinnati city council after retiring he joined the world league of american football as a vice president and general manager of the new york new jersey knights he then later rejoined the nfl where he conceived and opened the nfl's first youth education town in los angeles He then was hired as Director of Sports Development for Disney on April 19, 1993 and oversaw the creation of Disney's Wide World of Sports Complex, which is now the ESPN Wide World of Sports Complex, the -the state-of-the-art 220-acre multi-sport facility that opened March 28, 1997. He became the vice president of Disney Sports Attractions, where he oversaw a newly created sports and recreation division that merged with the Walt Disney World Resort, recreation, water Park and Disney Sports Attractions. In 2007, he stepped down to focus on his rehabilitation of his leg from the damages sustained during his playing in his NFL career. And as an author, he wrote his memoir. Resilient by nature, reflections from life of winning on and off the football field. It is my honor to bring to you my conversation with Reggie Williams. Reggie, thank you for coming on the Hey Coach podcast. I am so excited for this conversation.
1: Hey Coach is a great podcast, and I appreciate you inviting me on, Eric. I'll tell you, I, I'm a
0: huge Bengal fan from way back when there was no stripes on the helmets
1: wow well i wore those helmets i used to love wearing those helmets it was my very you know first uh nfl helmet i uh grew up a cleveland brown fan because my father was a jim brown fan and so i became a jim brown fan and rooted for cleveland and it kind of helped that um I'm from Flint, Michigan, you know, that the Detroit Lions have been, you know, a pretty futile program for the longest. Oh, yeah. But uh, yeah, and so when I got a chance to uh, play for Paul Brown, of course, I knew all about him, his legacy uh, with Cleveland and was really proud to wear that helmet. And uh, I wish they would uh, bring it back sometime, you know?
0: (laughs) Well, I got to ask you, are you excited about the AFC North Championship?
1: Well, you know, I'm extremely excited. Uh, Joe Burrow has proven himself to be a fantastic talent, a great leader. Uh, The fact that he wore his uh, three wide receivers' faces on his T-shirt as he went into the locker room for that decisive game against Kansas City, I can guarantee you, I never saw Kenny Anderson or Boomer Esiason. You know where the names of their teammates on their chest as they <laughs> went into battle. That's awesome.
0: That is awesome. But I'll tell you, uh, I heard you on a podcast. I believe it was a Disney Magic or something magic with uh, Lee Cockrell.
1: Yes, Lee Cockrell.
0: And immediately I bought your book. Okay. Immediately bought the book, and I was so excited about it. Uh, you have had many full careers. And I want to talk about the different aspects of that because how you adapt to different challenges, you know, is, is just amazing.
1: Where do you get that from? We're, we're always in the throes of, uh, opportunities for challenges. And, uh, so my, uh, father told me, uh, very early in my, childhood, learn from the mistakes of others, because you won't live long enough to make them all yourself. And so part of resilience really is learning from your surroundings, you know, being adaptable, you know, recognizing that, uh, you know, there are very few opportunities for perfection. And so you're trying to make the best out of every situation. And uh, that has driven me. The fact that I had so much adversity so early in my life, you know, also made me think that it's it's all normal. I mean, I was born hearing impaired. I spent, uh, you know, my second year in a hospital having a ear uh, operation. I was four years old and had another ear operation. I uh, you know, began to stutter and had to go to Michigan School for the Deaf. And unfortunately, it's called Michigan School for the Deaf and Dumb at that time, which created that stigma that you're different. And so uh, the fact that my mother is Puerto Rican and my father's Black, you're a little bit different, you know. And so uh, that's why the book Resilient by Nature, you know, was something that uh, allowed me to really uh, talk about all the lessons that I've learned And all the things I've observed in life, and you're right. I've transitioned from uh, 14 years playing linebacker in the NFL to being a Cincinnati City Councilman while I played, to uh, becoming a um, general manager of the New York New Jersey Knights, which sort of uh, introduced American football to Europe, and it still is thriving. uh, To being hired by the Walt Disney World Company to start the sports business, which ultimately came ESPN, Wide World of Sports. So, you know, I've also had to adapt to all of the injuries that I've accumulated over the years. And, you know, my whole way of walking now is p- completely different from how I spent the first 50 years of my life. You know,
0: you've touched on a lot of different things that you've done. and each one had its own adversities, their, their own challenges, I should say. Yeah. Right from the beginning, talk
1: about going into college and playing ball at college. Well, you know, I when, when I was in high school, I knew I was a better than average uh, high school player, but I had no college scholarship offers. I had teammates who had uh, scholarship offers. Uh, my uh, best friend, you know, Rick Taylor had a, went to uh, Miami of Ohio. My other uh, friend uh, went to Miami of Ohio as well. Another one went to Morgan State. Uh, Another one, uh, you know, ended up going to Michigan. I was going to go to Michigan on an academic scholarship. I had worked my butt off throughout high school to get the best possible grades to make sure that my father would not have to expend any money to further my education. You know, I really didn't think I was, you know, uh, worth a scholarship, but at least let me try out, you know, let me walk on the team. Well, Bo Schimbechler, who at that point in time was my hero, my idol, because I had always thrived to want to go to become a Wolverine, to have a chance to run out the tunnel into the big house. You know, the largest stadium in all of the United States. And that's, that was all that would have satisfied me. And when he came to my high school, I was so excited. I thought he was inviting me, you know, to try out for the team. Instead, he told me, do you a favor. Do him a favor and don't come out for the team if I do decide to go to Michigan. And, uh, you know, that was one of the worst moments of my life to, to that moment. Uh, and, you know, you have to you know pull your face, jaw off the ground and, you know, try to get some kind of self-respect and tell your dad what just occurred. And my father was my instant hero because he me- immediately said, forget Bo, you know, whatever it takes. I'll get another job to pay for you to go to Dartmouth College and play football. Uh, Dartmouth. um did have, uh, didn't have athletic scholarships, You know, they right. did uh, offer you grants and other things, but it was going to cost my father significant money for us to go to Dartmouth. And so that was a complete challenge uh, because when I ended up going to New Hampshire, I knew absolutely no one. There was no <laughs> one else from Flint anywhere in the state. So it certainly was a new experience. And uh, my very first day, you know, I got hit by a car, oh, geez. you know, crossing <laughs> the street, you know, it's like wake up call, you know, and then I go into the locker room and that's where I really um, faced um, racism for the very first time. You know, I, you know, growing up in uh, uh, Flint, Michigan, I ended up going to the very first elementary school that was integrated, Scott Elementary School. And so I've grown up with white kids in my classroom for as long as I could remember. And, you know, we all get along and we all endure the same learning experiences. And so I had not experienced a situation where there were, you know, white players who didn't want to play with black players. And therefore didn't want to be in the same locker room or shower. And that's what I encountered my very first day at Dartmouth college, going out for the football team, uh, which everybody just gets a chance to try out. No one has scholarships. Right. And uh, this player uh, wanted his locker moved because he would be sitting next to me. And that player Uh, ended up going to the equipment manager and trying to get his locker changed. That word got to the head freshman coach, Jerry Burnt. And Jerry Burnt did one of the most phenomenal things of leadership uh, in my career. He basically, when we all got out to practice, there were over 120 players trying out for this Dartmouth freshman football team. Um, And we were the freshman team to a dominant. Uh, Dartmouth College varsity team they were then three times Ivy League champions in a row back to back to back and would go on to become four times Ivy League champs and in my sophomore year we would go on to become five times Ivy League champions so wow. that first day though I encountered you know this act of racism and the head coach jerry burke made me the captain of the team that day he forced all players to rally behind the leadership of a black player right and uh he asked me to come and lead the team in calisthenics. I had never done that before. (laughs) I didn't know what to do. All I knew was jumping jacks. And after that, I was like, but what else, you know?
0: (laughs) That's awesome. That's awesome. That leadership, you know, that was probably even hard for that coach to do because who knows who was above him kind of putting some pressure on him. But you know what? He did the right thing.
1: He did the right thing because uh, many of my uh, teammates were coming from very prestigious households and backgrounds and you know you don't know what their family had donated to the college or anything along those lines but you know he did um make a difference on the team immediately and uh he was also my uh, wrestling coach and so I promised him that I would wrestle for him I had wrestled in high school it actually. Uh, Gone to the state championship, lost in the first round. But at uh, Dartmouth, I did wrestle for him my junior year. And uh, in that particular uh, season, we were coming off of a, a poor football year where we were three and six after winning five straight Ivy League We really had a hangover, and everyone sort of caught up to us. And so I went out for wrestling. In the very first match against Harvard, I lost. (laughs) And by the time, you know, I just lost. I just, you know, lost concentration in the third round and, you know, had my mind on something else. I was telling myself, focus, focus, focus during the match. And so on the bus ride from Cambridge back to Hanover, New Hampshire, I sort of convinced myself that I was going to quit. And, uh, you know, none of wasted my time, you know, let me finish my academics, you know, I haven't wrestled in a long time, made all these excuses. When I got back uh, to my dormitory and tried to convince my roommates, who were also my fraternity brothers, that I had decided to quit, they refused to let me quit. Wow. They refused to accept defeat, that I was going to be the next captain of the team. They were going to allow me as their fraternity brother to accept anything less. And so with their prodding, I went back and wrestled and didn't lose another match the entire season, became Ivy League heavyweight champion.
0: Wow. Awesome. Awesome.
1: Now I- the last time i ever wrestled.
0: <laughs> <laughs> now you were drafted into the NFL. And, In the uh, third round. Third, third round. Now, again, from Dartmouth College. I don't think there's a lot of a lot of guys who come out of Dartmouth that go to the NFL.
1: No, and you're being a linebacker, so you're an intimidator. You know, you're you're the person that's going to set the tone on the defense. You know, this is my territory. And the first, you know, after all that I did at Dartmouth, you know, I was a, uh, you know, the last uh, All American. From Dartmouth College and from the Ivy League, and um, and since the Ivy League was established in 1954, I am the only African American All American, you know, from the Ivy League. Wow. Um, awesome. And so, uh, Fritz Pollard was the first uh, African man, but he went to Brown in like 1916, and was a great running back, and he also was, I think, the NFL's very first African American coach. But um, for for me, I had achieved, uh, you know, quite a a stellar reputation. I was an All-American. When I went to the Hula Bowl, the defensive coordinator, George Hill, who was the defensive coordinator at Ohio State, he ridiculed me. He thought it was a joke that there was an Ivy League linebacker who was an All-American. He wouldn't start me. Uh, He benched me. And uh, he used to make jokes about me during practice. If anyone's tired, Reggie going go in to play different positions. And uh, other players were snickering, you know, about how he was disrespecting me the whole week. And he didn't play me the whole first half. And only played me one play in the second half, which was a pop screen pass to Joe Washington. The most elusive running back at that time in college football from Oklahoma, you know, he had followed you know the footsteps of Greg Pruitt in terms of you know open field, you know, shake and bake running, right, uh, right. which became you know the style of football and of the running backs during that time. Uh, the precursor to you know some of the greats in in the game, you know, Walter Payton, et cetera, right, but. On this particular play, I did miss him and but hustled up and missed him again and hustled up and then tapped him. So, you know, that's how he sort of ran at that time. But uh, the coach pulled me out the game and said, That's why I didn't want to play you. And I was gonna quit football. I didn't have my roommates to talk to me about, you know, staying with it. And as I flew. And landed in Cleveland, I really had kind of like, you know, eliminate the pain of being disrespected so much. And then I met my hero, Muhammad Ali. He's rambling through the Cleveland airport. And I just had to say hello. And, uh, you know, and that's the first time I ever got and received an autograph. And um, I still have it to this day. Wow, and uh, I told him what I was going through, and he told me basically to believe in myself. You're a hero when you believe in yourself, and uh, I had you know immediate infusion of confidence from my hero, who had much much more credibility than George Hill or Bo Schenbeck or all the naysayers you meet in life. You know, you know, you do have to believe in yourself. Yes, and uh, so I went on to. Uh, the Cincinnati Bingo locker room, and I had to fight every day to prove I belonged. I mean, uh, the seventh-round draft choice was a guy named Kenny Coon, who was the starting inside linebacker for Ohio State. He believed what his coach, uh, George Hill, said. He believed that I you know, wasn't a tough guy because I was from the Ivy League. And we literally fought in practice every single day. Or he egged some of the other offensive linemen to take it extra tough of me. And you know, I had to earn my stripes before we even had stripes in our helmets, <laughs> you know. And but I, you know, I did make it and uh as fate would have it, the very first, I'll tell you two stories from my uh my rookie year that left a indelible impression. The first was my very first uh, preseason game. My first time ever stepping on an NFL field was at Lambeau. And that field was so pristine. And Vince Lombardi was another one of my heroes. And I still remember uh, watching, you know, the ice bowl. And, you know, how cold that was and how rugged those players were. And here was my very first experience. And I remember in the very first kickoff, uh, Coy Bacon uh, and Big Bob Brown, who had played for the Packers, they both said, you better get that first tackle, Rookie. (laughs) And you can bet your whatever that I made that first tackle. So I was more scared of these two guys in my (laughs) locker room than all of those Green Bay Packers. And the second play that I'm running down on kickoff, I get to the pile up late, and there was a player from the Green Bay Packers with those beautiful white pants with the gold and green stripes down the side, who had had the last night dinner knocked out of him through his behind. (laughs) And it was such a gruesome sight and such a horrible smell (laughs) that I had to make sure that never happened to me because that's what people expected of an Ivy League linebacker. I would get the crap knocked out of me. And so here I actually saw that it can actually happen. And so from that game on, I strategized what is the best thing to do? And so that's when I made the decision for every single game for the next 14 years that I would never eat any solid food before game (laughs) on game day. I wouldn't put anything extra in my stomach. I only drank liquids. And the last thing I had to eat every night before every preseason and regular season game, postseason game was apple pie a la mode. Oh, just like, uh, you know, if you were, you know, a condemned prisoner and you had your last (laughs) meal, what last thing you have apple pie a la mode. And, uh, and so that, you know, impacted me. And the next thing that impacted me, my rookie year was my first time playing against Cleveland and Cleveland being, the team that I rooted for, you know, when I stepped to that field, it was magical as well, you know, but I'm in, it's different because I'm in the same footsteps now of my hero, Jim Brown, It's the same grass, you know, it's the same stands that he has seen. It's the, his fans. And uh, uh, the starting right outside linebacker, um, had uh, injured his knee in practice, and you know they had moved the inside linebacker over to started right outside linebacker Glenn Cameron instead of me uh, because they were still worried about me. It's my rookie year; it was only the third game into my rookie year, and they didn't know if I was ready to play yet. And so they started Glenn Cameron, and he just couldn't hold up. He just wasn't able to tackle in the open field. And Cleveland got off to a fast start. And in desperation, they put me in the game in the second uh, quarter. And as, as soon as they – my very first play was that play from the hula Bowl. And this time, instead of being Joe Washington, it's Greg Pruitt. You know, a good old pop pass, wide open. You know, and you've got to run them down and tackle them in open field. That's what had defeated Glenn Cameron two or three times. And they were throwing that at me the very first play I walked on the field. And when I made that tackle, um, my confidence took off. And I played well enough that game to never not sit on the bench again. I started 206 games for the Cincinnati Bengals. And um, it all started in Cleveland, you know, the home of my, my hero.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. It just proves that you got to be ready. You know, when, when that situation comes up, I mean, you look at it with, with Tom Brady. You look at it with a lot of these great players that were sitting behind someone. And when that time comes for you to get up there, you know, you got to perform. And like you, you performed and never got off the field after that.
1: You know. It's confidence. You know, there there is a confidence. Quite honestly, the night before that game, I didn't think quite honestly anything about the fact that they didn't trust me, okay? Because I knew I was going to get a chance to play. I didn't know when, but I knew I was going to get a chance to to play. My confidence was in my self-reflection because I remember in that very first play, you know, it wasn't just instinct. It was balls in the air. Now, while he's looking at the ball, I need to cut down the distance. I gotta close the ground and get be closer to him than he thinks by the time he turns around and looks upfield. And I'm concentrating on getting really sprinting as fast as I can while the ball's in the air. And then breaking down, telling myself to break down and look at his belly button. And that's the only thing I'm looking at. I'm not looking at his arms. I'm not looking at the ball. I'm not looking at his knees. I'm not looking at his ankles. I'm looking at his belly button. Wherever his belly button goes, he goes. And, you know, it's just walking right down to the point where, you know, he has to make a move before I made a move. You know, he thinks he can out quick me. And so he makes the first move. He like like a gunslinger, he he threw, drew his gun first and made his move. And I was able to, you know, wait for him and go with the belly button. That's and it. Uh, there it went. And, uh, you know, slapped them down. And uh, from that moment, I knew that, you know, if I followed what I had practiced, okay, that I would continue to have opportunities on the field that I could be successful at.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Sounds like you went right back down to the basics.
1: Basics I went right back. On that particular moment, I went back down to the basics. I mean, back down to how the big kids taught me on the playground when I'm growing up. And, you know, that's one of the great things, you know, uh, from Flynn, we had some great athletes. You see it a lot in basketball, Yes. you know, but we have great athletes and, You know, the older kids would teach the younger kids' skill sets. And that was one of the things was, you know, how to cut across the the, uh, grain. You know, you wait until someone has both their feet off the ground, and then you cut. You know, all those little lessons. And so, yeah, it all came back. You know, you had to bring it back.
0: That's it. That's it. That's awesome. And you had a a great career. You had 14 years as a, a linebacker at the Bengals. You were, actually, even prior to that, you were a College Football Hall of Fame inductee? I am in the
1: College Football Hall of Fame, yes. yes. I'm very proud to be in the Hall of Fame.
0: Yes, you played in two Super Bowls.
1: Yeah, you, Super Bowl 16 and Super Bowl 23, both against San Francisco.
0: Yeah. Both we,
1: against we, Bill Walsh. Yeah, yeah. Bill Walsh, <laughs> who wasn't hired by the Bengals, he was the offensive coordinator in 1975. Paul Brown retired instead of hiring Bill Walsh. He hired Bill Tiger Johnson, who was the offensive line coach. I I don't think it's just coincidence. Right. You know, that we lost our two Super Bowl very closely contested, both of them. Yes. yes. You know, we lost one game by five points and the other game by four points. So, it's. Yeah.
0: I remember, I remember watching the game. When Crum Rye's leg was broken, there was like this hush <laughs> when that happened, and uh, I was like, "Oh no!" I, I was like, "No, this can't, this can't happen." I got to put those two, I
1: got to put those two games behind me. <laughs> well, you know, you can imagine being on the field when that happened. I mean, you could hear it went off like a shotgun. You know, the pop, and um, you know he's hurt bad. And, you know, he's sort of right where the huddle normally would be. So I had to move the huddle and then, you know, get back to him, you know, get everyone away from him so the doctor attend to him. Then they had to, you know, get him up. He wouldn't leave the, the stadium for the whole first half.
0: Yes, He is such a that. tough guy. Yes. And
1: they had to force him to go to the hospital at the halftime. But we had we had played to a 3-3 three, three tie at halftime against the high – powered 49er offense and our offense, which was the number one offense in the NFL at that time also only scored three points, right? But they had a devastating situation the night before running back uh, Stanley Wilson uh, succumbed back to crack cocaine and he had already been suspended by the NFL for a season for previous uh, drug uh, issues. And uh, I was a city councilman at this time. And, you know, I had sort of publicly faced him up as someone that, uh, you know, we all need to forgive and we're going to welcome him back. And he had a great season. And it wasn't until the very first, the very last drug test that he took that Saturday in the locker room, You know, after Saturday's practice with his kids, you know, in the locker room, right after that, he went down into overtown where, you know, they were rioting and found drugs and sanitized his helmet. And it was discovered in the bathroom the night before the game. And Sam Weiss came down to the, the final dinner crying to tell us that we had lost Stanley. So our offense really did take a gut punch. Right. And because uh, I, was, I was a roommate that uh, game with James Brooks, and he knew how important Stanley was as a, as a blocking back, not only for him, but also for Boomer, for his right. blind side. And uh, it was all evidence the whole first half that we didn't score a single touchdown. And their only touchdown that we scored that that game was Stanford Jennings on the opening kickoff for a touchdown on the second half. Otherwise, and then, you know, we just spent the rest of the game defending that seven-point lead, basically. Wow. Well, I don't want to miss this because this is also important. You also
0: were a Walter Payton Man of the Year.
1: Yes, I was.
0: And I want to put that because that's not a small feat.
1: No, I had, um, I had a lot of disappointment you know, with uh, uh, not making um, the Pro Bowl in uh, 1981 in particular. Uh, in 1981, I probably had the best uh, the best year of a outside linebacker ever. I mean, that was the year that um, Lawrence Taylor came into the league, and that year he was uh, defensive rookie of the year. And he had nine sacks that year. And that's what he was known for. Right. I had 11 sacks. Yeah. I was the first linebacker ever to hit double digit. And he had one interception. I had four interceptions. He had uh, one forced fumble, for uh, uh forced fumble. I had four forced fumbles and three fumble recoveries. And I still didn't make the Pro Bowl. No one in our defense made the Pro Bowl. Wow. And uh, I was number two in tackles. Jimmy LeClaire was the leading tackler with with 105 tackles, 104 tackles. And so, but I didn't make the Pro Bowl. And, and, you know, that's the other thing that just reminded me that, you know, judgment by people in power. You've got to focus on the things that are most important to you. And I said, I'm going to focus now on the kids of Cincinnati. And so I doubled down on all the efforts. The first thing I had to do, the very first day I uh, knew I made the Cincinnati Bengals roster my rookie year, I volunteered at the Cincinnati Speech and Hearing Center. And uh, I was a volunteer there and then just was volunteering with United Way and Big Brothers and Big Sisters and all different organizations that were just all over every single public school, NC, they had a Reggie Williams scholarship for, for, uh, fund, and, you know, I just put my enthusiasm into that, rather than the kind of accolades that I received in college, but were not as forthcoming in the NFL, but uh, uh, being in Walter Payne NFL, man, the year is my highlight of my career, and I'm very proud of that award.
0: Yeah, no, that's, that's awesome. And I've noticed that throughout your whole career, you did a lot for the community. You volunteered, like you just said. As you said, just a little while ago, you became a councilman for three years. And being a
1: councilman, boy, I mean, that that put me in front of some uh, unique issues. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, I, I tell you, I mean, I watched the news and I follow different politics and politicians uh, because of that time. But I remember, you know, how, how you know, I fought against uh, assault weapons, you know, because I mean, if you love kids, you can't even imagine the horror of a active s- shooter in a school. Uh, right. You know, we've seen so many since then. But you know, I came this close to that passing that legislation in the city of Cincinnati back in 1988, and that's that's one of my biggest regrets. I mean. My biggest success story was uh, when I uh, passed legislation that forced our pension board to divest itself from all business in South Africa. It resulted in Archbishop Desmond Tutu calling our office and asking if he could meet with me. And, and I assembled all of my kitchen cabinet of influencers in Cincinnati. We met at Dr. Bauer's house. and. You know, Archbishop Desmond Tutu told us that, you know, that was the straw that broke the camel's back, that by that time, all of the Boer government, German government, was doing all of their business internationally through Cincinnati. I really didn't know that. Uh, Our pension board knew that. And so in doing that, we really cut them off financially more than any other city could have done it at that time. And so he said it was the straw that broke the camel's back, and then Nelson Mandela was getting out of prison, and they were getting ready to have the very first Democratic uh, election in 1994. I mean, you think about, is it worth it to lose two Super Bowls for something like that? Almost. You know, I, still would rather, I still would rather have it. No, I don't know. All right. that's a close foot, but I still it. would like to have the ring.
0: <laughs> so that's that's awesome. That's awesome. And it goes beyond because when you retire from the NFL, you started working with uh, Disney. Yeah, you know, I had had
1: a situation before that. Oh, okay. Okay. You know, the oh, reason that I right. got the... Yes, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. So, you know, after the World League of American Football, I was the general manager there two years. Right. Unexpectedly. They cut it off. You know, all of a sudden, you know, I was out of a job for the very first time. I'm in New York City. And as I'm sitting at, you know, know, because I'm in New York, I'm at the uh, NFL headquarters. Uh, Jim Stig, who was the special events vice president for the NFL, basically ran all of the halftime show. Uh, He had a problem because the next Super Bowl was going to be in Pasadena. The next Super Bowl was going to be a big one because they had Michael Jackson for halftime, yet they had the Rodney King riots. And so he asked me to take the role of director of community relations to come up with something that would show the American people that the NFL had a heart, that they care, and uh, that they recognized that a lot of their players came out of South Central so that's when I came up with NFL Youth Education Town, a multifaceted education and recreation facility right in the, the heart of Compton, right in the same uh, corner that the Taco Bell was burned down at the epicenter of the riot at the strip mall across the street. We were able to construct this, this fantastic facility, first class facility, for all of those kids and they were four over a thousand kids, and I hired Mike Davis, the uh, starting defensive back for the Raiders, to run it. To you know, as a celebrity, and and uh, that's the time I had to negotiate the truce between the Bloods and the Crips, so that neither of the gangs would tag that place. And I needed Jim Brown, and so Jim Brown, my hero, became. A real hero when he set up the meeting. We had to go to that meeting blindfolded. That's, so you know, I write about that in my book. Yes. It's worth reading. Oh no, um, it definitely is that is, and and that's
0: a that was a scary part of the book. That when I was listening, I was like, I don't know how I wouldn't have soiled myself
1: in that situation. <laughs> well, you know, you know, and it's just you know, it's the same mentality as football. I know I'm going into an adverse situation. You know, it's 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 goal line. It's it's cold. It's the coldest game in NFL history, which I played. Fifty nine degrees below zero. The AFC Championship game uh, uh, in nineteen eighty two. I mean, you know it's going to be tough. You you know, and, and when it turns out to be tougher because it was it was colder than I expected <laughs> to be at minus fifty nine below zero. Okay, and you know when you actually see people who are gangbangers. And they've got these tattoos under their eyes. You know, they've killed people. You know, they wouldn't hesitate a second if you crossed them the wrong way on the wrong day. But, you know, that's not what the focus is. And I had to keep the focus on the kids that will benefit from NFL Youth Education Town and, you know, keep the priority and the focus where I had and, and didn't have to worry about the fact that they all were carrying weapons and they were all packed and you know, any any kind of warfare and I'm in the middle of it, you know, but you know, you have to keep the focus on the kids.
0: Right, right. That's that's awesome. Like I said, that's definitely a great story that's in the book. I loved it. It was great from cover to cover. It was awesome. Now then you got the job and well, at Well Disney at Disney, and it's also dealing with kids and thought.
1: Yeah, you know, yeah, you know, just if you know, it's the funny thing transition. The only reason that I got the job at Disney, the only reason is because I lost a job at the World League of American Football. And now I'm doing this director of community relations. And so one of my Dartmouth classmates, Michael Montgomery, you know, has gone through B school and now he's the treasurer of Disney. He's a friend and so I'm looking for sponsorship. What can the company give to the kids in Compton? And they were very charitable. But while I'm at the luncheon, um, Michael Eisner came over to the table and, uh, you know, it's just like a coach coming over and say, Hey, we've got this new defense we want to run and we're going to let it feature around you. What kind of defense would you run? You know, in this case, he's asking me, telling me, we got all this land at Walt Disney world and we just got into the sports business because we had just bought the mighty ducks and his kids had gone to Dartmouth. So he knew of me, but we had never met. And so I felt comfortable giving him my vision of really building this destination. One of the unique things about Flint was Atwood Stadium, one of the very first stadiums in the country uh, to have artificial turf. And it was a stadium that not only did JFK speak at, but Martin Luther King spoke at. And so it was like a central stadium for the city of Flint. But it's also a place. On Friday nights, there was always someone playing against someone, and so there were four high schools. And so, uh, you know, instead of you know being you know the four high schools, just the four com- uh, four corners of the United States having a central place to meet, and it would be built similar to the facilities at Dartmouth College, with all of these fields and all of this sort of a Olympic Village kind of atmosphere. And uh, and so they he was impressed enough to insist that I enter, you know, interview and I was hired at Walt Disney World uh, probably a a few months later. And I'm going to tell you, it was it was one of the best experiences of my life working at Walt Disney World. I mean, the quality of talent in the Imagineering Department for them to sort of take that vision and put it on paper and take it from paper to building a model and, and building blueprints and hiring the right architect and bringing the vision to life. That was one of the most rewarding experiences. And the whole idea was about kids. You know, you wanted to build the place that you knew was authentic, a place that they knew they were coming to compete against the best. In order to be the best, you have to compete against the best. And I wanted them to fall in the follow in the footsteps of great athletes so we had a, a smattering of professional events including the Atlanta Braves during spring training there but the whole idea was for these kids to feel first class we had every sports event had an athletic trainer I mean for us that you know and most kids didn't don't have that right. and, you know you're treating them professionally and you're treating their injuries and things like that but you know for me wide world of sports You know, it was also a place that if you competed for that championship and for some reason you lost, you still were at the happiest place on earth.
0: Exactly.
1: You still could think of things to smile about. And in, you know, Joe Robbie Stadium, I had nothing to smile about. (laughs) And when I lost in the Silver Dome and Super Bowl 16 and Pontiac, I had nothing to smile about. So, you know, part of the vision, you know, was to provide kids. You know, with the ultimate and sports experience, but a place where they can do it and be happy and stay happy.
0: Awesome. Awesome.
1: And so how long did you stay at Disney? I stayed at Disney for 14 years. Wow. So it took uh, two years to get the business approved, uh, two biz- two years to build the business. Then I ran the business for uh, 10 years. All until, you know, knee operations, A um, uh, knee operation gone bad. And uh, I had to retire. So after that, you know, yeah. Yeah, I'm real proud of how the business has performed since I, I retired, though. Yeah. Oh, awesome.
0: Awesome. And just quickly, we're talking about the knee operation. You have had over 20 knee operations.
1: Yeah, I've had over over 20. Uh, most of them on the right knee. I've had four right knee replacements, and so my right knee has had osteomyelitis. And so that has resulted in, you know, a lot of reconstructed surgery. Um, And the right leg is three and a half inches shorter than the left. So I'm like six foot one on my left leg and five foot nine and a half on my right leg. So, you know, you figure, you know, but it's another thing you have to overcome. And so that's really the, the resilience that we all must find in the circumstances that we all find ourselves in.
0: Awesome. Awesome, so I don't don't want to take too too much more of your time. What are you doing now? I know you're you're speaking. W- what else? I know you're advocating. Uh, you have a cannabis avocation because it's been helping you with your the pain in your leg.
1: Well, it's helped with the pain in my leg, and you don't know. And that's where I want to see studies on, is if uh, cannabis will be helpful for CTE. And it's amazing, you know, you know all the speculation now about Antonio Brown, you know. You know, whether there was something there, you know, um, uh, with CT. And so I just don't know. I just know that there have been studies that have shown that it has been beneficial in other neurological issues in the brain. So um, that's one of the reasons I'm an advocate and continue to encourage more research. And I plan on donating my uh, brain to the Concussion Legacy Project just to know for sure if indeed I do have a CTE, oh, but you know, for the most part, man, I'm, I'm a doting grandfather here in uh, Orlando, just moved back uh, probably about a month ago. And I've got uh, uh, four grandchildren here in Orlando and the fifth on the way. Awesome. You know, I just want to grow up in their life. I had uh, two grandmothers, but didn't have a grandfather when I grew up. So I had uh gone out of, uh, Orlando for five years. And, you know, I find that it's a, uh, politically, you know, I found it better to be in Orlando than out there in the red areas of, of Florida. And I am a you, you know, all of those Florida memes about what goes on in, uh, the South and Florida, you know, Florida man and Florida woman, I, for real. Okay. <laughs> you know, for real. Okay.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Well, if anybody wants to get in touch with you, how's the best way they can reach out to you?
1: No, they can reach out to me on uh, Instagram or Facebook. You know, Facebook's probably the easiest because, you know, it's Reggie Williams, you know. um, But, you know, either one. And uh, uh, that's a really good question. I do have a website, Reggie Williams, that I I will be launching. So I'll alert you to that when that comes uh, up. Okay, But, uh, you know, for the most part, you know, I... You know, the most part, people approach me the old-fashioned way. I get uh, a lot of fan mail, and I always look forward to a returning uh, mail and returning uh, autographs. So, awesome, awesome, and your book, Resilient by Nature, yes, Resilient written in coordination nature. with Jared Bell and the Ford is written by Seattle Seahawks quarterback Russell Wilson. He and his father. And I were best friends at Dartmouth College. He was also a two-sport athlete. He played baseball and was a wide receiver. And him and Russell looked so much alike. Wow! And so, um, so there's a he has a great story in the book. So I, I hope you do get a chance to uh, spur some readership. Thanks.
0: Yes, yeah. So that's resilient by nature. Reflections from a life of winning on and off the football field. There you go. I will put that thanks, Eric. The, I will put that on the show notes. And my last question. It's fourth and goal. There's a minute left on the clock. And there's no timeouts and the game's on the line. Give us
1: something to leave with. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to finish this with Invictus, okay? And Invictus, you know, by William Ernest Henley, was about overcoming adversity against all odds, you know? And so, you know, it's, it's something I learned in college, and I've tried to live this Invictus life of overcoming adversity. And so um, – you know, so it goes like this and finish. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit, from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bloodiness of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the field, and yet the menace of the year fine and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. It's important to have self-confidence, and that's the message I'm going to leave with.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Reggie, this has been an honor. I thank you for your time.
1: And I appreciate you wearing that bingo shirt
0: on the show. That's there what i proud of. <laughs> I got that. And I got a, a boomer sign ball back here
1: somewhere. Thank you again for coming on the Hey Coach podcast. Hey Coach. All right. Thanks, Eric. Nice yeah. chatting with you.
0: Man, this was great. You know, it's an honor for me to speak to someone who has done so much and that I looked up to growing up. It's amazing the things that he's done throughout his whole career. He is definitely an inspiration and he is the epitome of resilience. A couple of takeaways that I got from him. One was learn from the mistakes of others because you won't live long enough to make them all yourself. That was great advice from his father. I love that saying. Second thing was what he got from Muhammad Ali told him to believe in himself that's a small little thing in an airport did not even have to stop to talk to him but that was just the way he was he gave him exactly what he needed to hear at the exact point in time and look what Reggie did and the last thing was focus on the things that are most important to you We need to prioritize and find out what's important to us and focus on that. I will put all of Reggie's information on our show notes, how you can reach him, his website, and his book, Resilient by Nature. And if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can reach me at eric at heycoachreyes.com. I'd love to hear from you. And until next time, what's important to you? Take care.